Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. In today's special episode, in efforts to spread awareness and helpful information on how we can best manage during the coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Vivek Murthy is joining us. Dr. Vivek Murthy served as the 19th Surgeon General of the United States. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and his MD and MBA degrees from Yale. He completed his internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and later joined Harvard Medical School as faculty in internal medicine. In addition to his role as America's doctor, as the vice admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, Dr. Murthy commanded a uniform service of 6,600 public health officers serving the most underserved and vulnerable populations in over 800 locations throughout the United States and also across the world. He worked with thousands of Commission Corps officers to strengthen the Corps and protect the nation from Ebola and Zika and to respond to other crises like hurricanes, the Flint water crisis, and also healthcare shortages in rural communities, which happens all the time. He is a beautiful thinker who throughout his tenure also focused on the epidemic of loneliness and all those deaths of despair that come from it. His book, called Together, addresses that and comes out at the end of April. He is coming back on the Goop podcast then to talk about what we can do to create a less lonely world. But first, we're going to talk about the coronavirus pandemic today. We talked about the practicalities of the virus, along with what it might mean for us going forward. All right, Dr. Murthy, let's get right to it. So, you know, I think at this point, I'm sure some people are flouting the recommendations to, I guess at this point, it's now getting to shelter in place in San Francisco because it's the 17th of March um, and to socially distance and stay home and people are washing their hands. But our understanding of exactly how this spreads is still evolving, right? Like we don't at this point know that it's Sur- just surface or, or droplets, et cetera. Like, do you do you know exactly at this point how it's spreading? Is it is it through breath, like the measles, or? It's a um, good question. Do so we not know? This is one of the challenges with this new coronavirus. It's that it's new, and we're still learning a lot about the virus, including how it spreads, who it affects, who is most likely to pass it on, as well as. Um, what the consequences are for our bodies. What we what would seems to be the case right now, based on what we understand, is that the virus spreads in a way very similar to the flu 
or to a cold, uh, that it's through droplets, droplets, respiratory droplets. So when I sneeze or cough, uh, the particles uh, that come out of my nose and my mouth may get on my hands or on other surfaces around me, and they carry uh, the virus. And when somebody else puts their hand on a surface or when they shake my hand, then they have the virus on them. And if they touch their face, as most of us are prone to do many, many times an hour, then the virus can enter through our nose, our mouth, or through our eyes. And so that seems to be how the, the virus most commonly spreads. What's, what we don't know uh, and what we're still learning about is just who is able to pass on the virus and at what stage of their illness. So it seems pretty clear that if you're at the point of being symptomatic, if you already have a fever and a cough, that you're contagious and that you're passing it on to mm -hmm. other people. But there's growing evidence that even people who have the virus and aren't symptomatic yet can still pass it on to other people. Now, this is very concerning because this means that uh, I now need to worry not only about the people who have symptoms, but about the people who don't have symptoms because they could have the virus brewing and could be shedding it and infecting other people. And that is why you see such aggressive measures being taken to control this virus because it's not as simple as saying, well, let's figure out who's sick, let's make sure that they're isolated, and then we'll be okay. Because it's not so simple to identify who's spreading the virus. Right. I mean, like children could easily be vectors for this disease, and they're not really, for the most part, getting sick. Um, so I know that we have been late and that we're about, what, 10 or 11 days behind Italy at this point on the curve. Um, at this point, do we, I know we want to blunt the curve. I know we don't want it to become exponentially worse, but it seems like we're, we're heading toward some overwhelm of the healthcare system, right? I mean, at this point, like we're, we're, it's a little too little, too late to avert a significant um, impact. I know already, obviously, like, I guess probably 5,000 people are sick in the U.S., but what are you optimistically and pessimistically, like, what are you ex expecting to happen? Yeah, so I think there's still a case to be made for acting aggressively and quickly, because every day that we wait to take aggressive measures to control the spread of this virus is another day when the virus spreads. And we know that at the phase that we are at, the early phase of the virus, that this is where there is exponential growth. And that means that each day we are going to be seeing more and more and more cases. It starts off as 10 or 20 cases a day, then pretty soon it's a few hundred, and then very quickly it's a few thousand cases a day. This is what happened in China. It's what happened in South Korea. It's what's happening right now in Italy. And so we have been looking at these other countries, and we have the benefit in some ways of being a little bit behind them in terms of time. So we're 10 to 14 days behind Italy. We're probably a month or more uh, behind where China was. But what that give, we have to take advantage of that opportunity by putting in place aggressive mitigation steps. Now, we're not going to be able to, to get rid of the virus entirely overnight, and we will very likely see cases go up uh, for several weeks more. So if we take aggressive mitigation measures, which mean that we are really good about washing our hands, about not touching our face, about staying home when we're sick, about not greeting other people with contact, like a handshake. Uh, being aggressive in mitigation also means that we're really good about staying 
at home are limiting our physical contact with other people. So we're not going to work, we're not going to school, we're not uh, going to events or to restaurants and, or crowded bars. Even if we do all of that, we will still see cases rise uh, over the next week. But what we are hoping is that we will blunt the ultimate peak of this virus. Uh, we want to lower the peak. And you've heard this, you may have heard this term called flattening the curve. And let me tell you what that means. These viruses typically, when you look at the number of people they affect on a graph, that graph goes up very suddenly in a steep curve. It peaks at some point and then it goes down. And the peak of that curve is what determines the maximum number of cases. And that is directly related to how stressed your hospital capacity will be. So if I have, just for example, a thousand beds and the virus peaks at 2,000 cases, then this is worrisome because I may have to hospitalize a large number of people and I only have a thousand beds. But if I can tamp down that peak, if I can flatten the curve so that the peak is, let's say, only 100 or 200 cases, then I have a better chance of being able to handle that with my hospital capacity. And that's the goal here. It's to flatten that curve, to reduce the peak number of cases, knowing that we're going to be dealing with this virus for at least several months more, maybe even longer. But if we can keep that peak down, then we can give our health systems a fighting chance. We can also give our scientists an opportunity to develop medications that could be used to treat the virus and ultimately a vaccine. A vaccine will take on the order of 18 months or so to develop. But all of these steps in between are really important to preventing the worst case outcome, which we're seeing, frankly, in Italy right now. Are we, do you have any sense of, I know that we started testing a vaccine on Monday and that it will take obviously a while to prove that it A, is effective and B, safe, but what, um, what about ventilators? Are there, is there, are we mass producing more ventilators? Cause we don't have enough, right? Like that's the other very alarming thing is that doctors are being forced to choose at least in Italy between who gets ventilated and who doesn't. And then we have very few ECMO machines, right? So are we mass producing? I saw a story on, they were 3D printing um, parts of masks, I think, somewhere in the United States, which, which was very cool. But do you know if we are increasing our ventilator capacity? Well, the government is working on increasing our capacity uh, in, in a couple of ways. So, and just to back up for a moment, the, what you're mentioning is incredibly important because for our hospital systems to function well, there are a couple of core components we need. Number one, we need space. So we need beds. Uh, and we are going to run into a shortage there. The second thing we need is equipment. And that includes ventilators. It also includes protective equipment like masks and gowns and gloves. And the third thing that we need are people, the healthcare workers themselves. On all three fronts, we are in danger of falling short. And let me explain why. If you look at the number of ICU beds, that we have intensive care beds in this country, it's somewhere between 45 to 60,000. The projections are that if this pandemic has just a moderate impact, so not a severe impact, but just a moderate impact on the United States, it would increase our ICU bed needs to 200,000. That's much, much more capacity uh, than we have right now. Similarly for ventilators, we could afford uh, to see a mild uh, epidemic or pandemic here and respond with the ventilator supply we have, but we are not equipped 
uh, with enough ventilators to deal with even a moderate uh, epidemic. We have some extra ventilators in what's called a strategic national stockpile, which is a collection of medications, masks, ventilators, and other equipment that we may need for medical emergencies. But it's nowhere near the amount that we need. We're also running out of masks. You know, doctors in hospitals around the country, many of whom I've spoken to over the last few days, who are having to reuse their masks from patient to patient because they simply don't have enough. And my own father and sister, who are primary care doctors, have run out of masks and they are having a hard time ordering one because many of the vendors are out. And so the supply of materials, including ventilators and masks, is very important. What the government is trying to do now is they're trying to work with private industry to dramatically accelerate uh, the production of the supply that we need. Uh, And time will tell uh, how that will work and whether it will work quickly enough. But we are in a race against the clock here. You know, already we are seeing hospitals that are seeing a surge in in patients in the ER who are coming in with COVID-19 symptoms. And at Emory, uh, just today, in fact, it was reported that a growing number of doctors uh, are now being diagnosed with the virus themselves, uh, which is pulling them out of the workforce. So the need to mass produce these materials, the need to set up uh, makeshift hospitals and to to take gyms and other public spaces and reposition them for hospital bed use, this is becoming incredibly important, and time is really of the essence. Yeah, I mean, China put up two hospitals, right, in two weeks. But I like the, I mean, we do have a lot of big spaces already that that makes a lot of sense, gyms and arenas. Um, Yeah, a friend who's a, a surgeon in Seattle and her husband is the chief of critical care at a big hospital said too that like there they need um not just masks and face shields you know it's like n95 masks and caper paper capr papr to go into any room just because again like they don't know exactly how it's spreading and they're treating it like tb essentially um but that clearly they're running out of supplies it's it's you know, one of those things that's disappointing is it feels like America, should, we should just have this stuff. But I guess this is, we haven't had a pandemic for 100 years. So maybe these things are impossible to predict. Yeah, It's a good question, though, of what should we be doing uh, now, but also in the future? Because here's the thing, you can never predict when a pandemic is going to come, but you can reliably predict that it will come. Because we've seen multiple outbreaks uh, over the last few years. We've seen Zika, we've seen Ebola, you know, we've seen H1N1 or swine flu. Uh, and we've seen outbreaks before that. We've had large flu outbreaks, uh, pandemic flu uh, in, you know, in the world over the last half century. And certainly in 1918, we had the Spanish flu, which was one of the worst pandemics that we faced. So while we don't know when, we know that it will certainly come. And it's extraordinarily important that we learn from each of these uh, instances. When I was Surgeon General, for example, we we had to deal with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa as well as uh, the Zika uh, epidemic. And in both cases, you know, we realized that there were some things we were really well prepared for and there were other areas where we needed to do better. And so we learned from each one. One of the critical responses that came out of Ebola as well as Zika was a recognition that we have to work together 
with other countries to ensure that all of our health systems are set up to handle these outbreaks when they come. Uh, because we can't just think that, okay, if we shore up the United States, we're going to be okay. We saw that with Ebola. When, the, when Ebola, uh, sort of is, when the outbreak started in West Africa, the healthcare systems there were not set up to contain it, much less to monitor it. And we didn't know what was really going on for a little while. And, it, and by the time we f- figured out as a, as a world what was happening, the outbreak was already well on its way. And because of travel being the way it is uh, these days, people, the world is deeply connected. So we can no more easily keep a virus out, uh, you know, of our country now, um, you know, than we could keep the people out, uh, you know, who travel to our country each and every day from all over the world. So this is really important that we learn these lessons, that we coordinate well with other countries, that we look at our supply chains for medications and materials and make sure that we have the ability to ramp production domestically. And that we ensure that we're working in close concert across government and with the private sector to make sure that if we need emergency responders, if we need space and bed set up, if we need the public to step up and help respond uh, to an urgent need, that we have the mechanisms in place uh, to call people to action. And I think there will be a lot of lessons to learn uh, after this one, but my hope is we'll come out of this uh, with strengthened resolve to make sure that we are better prepared for the next one. Yeah, I just, I interviewed uh, Ambassador Power shortly before this this broke out and I love her book, you know, and she talks a fair amount about Ebola and what happened across the globe in a concerted and cooperative way to contain it and train local health workers, et cetera. So it's, it, was, it was heartwarming to understand that that's possible. Um, and this is obviously different in the way that it it spreads, um, although Ebola sounds more terrifying. Um, <laughs> so, but I guess, and and I, I'm glad you brought up H1N1 and um, Spanish flu because ultimately that's the other big question, right? Will this seasonally disappear? Will it be back with a vengeance in the fall? Like. Uh, the Spanish flu will it just become one of our a virus that is part of our yearly cycle that we ultimately start to develop an immunity for because right now it's new and then it might not be. Um, we don't know, right? Like it, it only time will tell what this will ultimately look and perform like. That's right, and that's part of what's hard here is I wish we could predict what would happen to this virus in warmer weather. I wish we could also predict how long we need to observe these severe mitigation practices that we're advocating across the country. But unfortunately, time will tell. What Our hope is that the virus will decline when warmer weather comes, the summer months. And some viruses behave like that, but not all viruses do. Uh, if, even if it does disappear during the warmer months, it can certainly always come back in the fall. And in fact, that's what happened with Spanish flu. And it actually did more damage during its second round than even during its first round. So we have to be vigilant. And even if it were to disappear, you know, in the warmer months, we have to continue our efforts and accelerate our efforts to make sure that we are developing medications that can treat the virus once it's infected someone. And also that we're continuing to push forward on a vaccine. You know, one of the reasons why we are less affected or less severely affected by influenza than we are by COVID-19 is that, you know, we have medications like 
also Tamavir or Tamiflu, which can help treat the flu. We also have a vaccine for the flu. In a, in a good year, it's about 60% effective. In a bad year, it's closer to 30% effective. But at least it gives you some immunity. And also the flu has been going around for, for years and years. So many of us have at least some innate immunity that we've built up. What's been challenging about this virus is that because of our bodies haven't seen it before, we haven't developed any innate immunity. We don't have any what's called herd immunity that protects us uh, from, from the virus. And we also haven't figured out what kind of medications work and haven't developed the vaccine. But we've got to accelerate those efforts even if the virus uh, you know, sort of reduces in number uh, over the summer because it very well could come back. Yeah. And um, the are there, we don't also know, and I guess there, we're sort of rationing the um, medicines that might be effective, right? So we can also expect sort of a long development phase as we figure out what to do with this new type of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I think we, I think we can, that's fair to say that we can expect that this will take some time. That Look, we're figuring out a lot of things right now, figuring out how to make our healthcare system work, figuring out what this virus is exactly doing and who's the most at risk. Uh, we're also figuring out how to live our lives in this new normal, and hopefully it won't be a long-term normal, but at least for a short term for a few weeks or more likely a few months, we'll be living in this environment where we are dramatically reducing the amount of physical interaction that we have with other people. And that this is incredibly difficult, not just because it's anxiety-provoking and stressful, but because there are real things that are getting disrupted in our lives. For parents who have kids who are now no longer in school, they've got to figure out how to care for their kids, how to make sure that they're still learning, um, and how to, you know, be with them during the day, whereas, you know, you might be teleworking because, you know, your workplace has disbanded in-person uh, time, but how are you supposed to telework uh, if you're also now taking care of your kids at home? These are really difficult uh, questions and situations that parents have to face. And we're also recognizing that the economic impact of this is, has already been profound and is going to be staggering uh, as restaurants and bars are unable to accommodate uh, customers in person. And, you know, as sports teams uh, shut down and concerts shut down, all of the vendors that depend on them are also going to struggle. I was just taking an Uber uh, about a week and a half ago uh, when things were starting to get pretty bad. And the gentleman who was driving me said, you know, I think I'm going to have to stop driving because it seems like I'm going to be putting myself at risk and maybe even other people. But that was his primary source of income, and he doesn't have another choice. How He was asking, how am I going to eat? How am I going to pay my rent uh, if I can't drive? And so there are a lot of people who are having to choose between their health uh, and their ability to put a roof over their heads, to feed themselves and their families. And figuring out how to care for them, figuring out how we care for each other is going to be a profound challenge that we have to deal with in a relatively short period of time. Um, I can't think of many other times in the country's history, maybe since World War II, where we had to sustain such a profound shift and uh, to our economic life, our social life, and to our health. Um, but this, I think, will stand in history as one of the great challenges uh, that we had to undertake as a country and as a world. 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're at such an interesting inflection point, obviously, politically and culturally in this country. And this seems to be another example of how it's not tenable. We cannot operate like this in this polarized way. And we also, as dependent as we are on the government for things like adequate testing and healthcare, we're also equally interdependent with each other. And, um, you know, obviously the the big systemic solves, you know, and rent abatements and, you know, no eviction, like whatever it is that emerges from this so that people can get through this knowing that they're not going to be turned out of their homes and that they will be able to eat, et cetera. Um, these primary needs, like we're going to have to collectively solve that with each other. Um, and, you know, it is, it's a great calling, you know, for all of us of what is essential and what might not be essential. And, you know, these big questions about, you know, what's enough for me and how much can I give um, in this moment of time to make things slightly more equitable. And, you know, to speak to your book, which I know we'll talk about at length when we meet again, how can we stay connected and how can we um, reach out to those who are most impacted, who are lonely and scared and um, incredibly stressed um, in these times. I mean, do you have, I also want to ask you about testing, but do you have, what are you, what are the things that we can do while we're required to stay away? Gosh, it, it's such a good question. And I just, uh, I want to reflect on one thing you also just said earlier, which I thought was very powerful, uh, which is that this experience will force a reckoning uh, of, in terms of how we think about the polarization and the partisanship that has in a way, infected our country for for many, many years. There are very few people I meet as I travel around the country who feel that the state of our politics, that the state of our dialogue is healthy in the United States. Uh, We all agree that we could do much better here. But I think the fundamental principle and reality that I think this crisis is forcing us to confront is that we are truly interdependent and that we need each other. Uh, You know, we have a a strain in our culture, a thread, if you will, in the narrative of America that tells us that success is built on individual effort. You know, we like to tell the story of the individual who built a company, uh, of the athlete who led a sports team to victory, of the single volunteer who built a nonprofit organization and changed the world. But we know in reality that these are often group efforts and that that individual as talented uh, as they may as they may be, were often supported by a cast of characters, not just at work, but at home and more broadly in society that enable them to succeed and to have an impact. And as we tell our stories, I think we have to ask ourselves, where is that collective narrative? Where are we telling the stories uh, of the individual or are we telling the stories of the group, uh, recognizing that it is the group that moves things forward? There's an old saying um, that if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. And I think as a country, if we want to go far, if we want to survive not just the next few years, but the next few generations, if we want to create a world that is strong and sustainable and healthy and deserving uh, of our children, 
then we have to go far, which means that we have to go together. That means that we ultimately have to refocus on how we strengthen our connections with each other. It means that we have to ask ourselves what we need to do to repair dialogue and recognize that improving dialogue in America is more than about putting people with different views together in the same room and having them duke it out and come to some sort of consensus. That's not how you build dialogue. You build dialogue by building relationship first. Uh, the reason that we can have conversations with family members who may violently disagree with us uh, and still want to come together each Thanksgiving or around the dinner table is because those, rela- those conversations are being had on a foundation of deep relationship. And so even if we think that our you know, relative has disturbing views, we still know that there are many good parts of them and that they're not all bad. We can see them for who they are, not just for an individual opinion that they may have. If we want to have a real dialogue about issues like gun violence in our country, if we want to have a real dialogue about reproductive rights, if we want to talk about how to end poverty, how to address climate change, how to build a healthcare system that works for everyone, we can't have those conversations if we don't genuinely like and understand the people that we're talking to. It doesn't mean everyone's got to be our best friend, but it does mean that we have to start with building relationship with each other. And that, I think, will emerge as one of the great challenges that we face, but also perhaps one of the most important realizations that we may come out of this whole coronavirus experience with, a recognition that our relationships are the foundation on which we build everything else. And when they are strong, when they are healthy, then there's nothing that we can't face down together. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I I think it also... It's call it's calling us a little bit to the mat on the idea of personal responsibility, as you mentioned, this idea that we live in a meritocracy or that hard work, you know, prevails. And I think many of us recognize that that's often a total myth and that it's a marriage, you know, between personal responsibility and community support. And in this, you know, coronavirus, simply because we understand that containing one sick person isn't you know, who's, who's visibly symptomatic, like isn't, we can't blame it on that, if that makes sense. It's required that we socially distance and that we protect each other even when we may not be sick. I think it's in a way a, like a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful sort of exercise in dismantling that idea that it, it can be done solely on an individual level and I really, I really like you, hope that we can come together. And um, again, like the reprioritization of all of these things that so many of us take for granted, you know, like our health and our ability to get clean food and water that are just not available to so many Americans. Um, That's absolutely right. Yeah. No, it's absolutely right. And if I can, I'll just add that, you know, in this moment in particular, when people are being asked to physically distance themselves from others, this is going to be a really stressful time because, you know, it is through our relationships that we often de-stress. If we can't see our friends and we can't spend time with family members, then that can be really challenging. But our relationships and connections are often also how we get help. And so if you're older and frail and now you're isolated in your home and you fall, what do you do? 
Well, you can call 911, sure, in an emergency. But what if you're starting to run out of food? It's becoming an emergency, but not quite one yet. Is there anybody to check on you to make sure you're, you're okay? Is there anybody who can help bring you some food to make sure that you don't starve? These are the real questions that now many, many people are facing. Because in our country, there are millions of people who live on the edge of food insecurity and who are just barely getting by. And as we think about them, as we think about people who have chronic illnesses who need help, many of them may be at greater risk now uh, when, they were, when they were standing to become more isolated uh, than ever before. And so I think part of what we need to do is we recognize the social cost uh, of our response to COVID-19 is recognize that, number one, we've got to make it a priority to reach out uh, to other people and make sure they're okay. None of us are going to make it through uh, this pandemic uh, if we're not looking out for each other and actively supporting each other. But number two, we've got to make it a point to prioritize human interaction in our lives, even if we can't see people in person. And that means using the power of technology to connect with other people. Now, in the modern age, we can text people, we can call them, we can email them, we can video conference with them. Um, what I would say is that making sure that you're spending at least 5, 10, 15 minutes a day engaging with somebody that you love is incredibly important, even though it's a small amount of time. When done consistently uh, over weeks and months, it can give you a foundation, uh, if you will, for, for strength uh, and for fulfillment that can be extraordinarily important in these times. And, and finally, I would also add to just to recognize that the quality of our time really does matter with other people. Sometimes fulfilling interactions aren't about how much time you spend with somebody. It's how good the time actually is. Um, you know, if we're honest, and I'm certainly guilty of this, many of us have spent time catching up with a friend over the phone while flipping through our email or looking at the news or refreshing our social media feed. Uh, it's easy to do because these platforms are extraordinarily compelling. But you know, you'll also recognize that 15 minutes can go by and you barely remember what was said. Because as much as we like to believe that we can multitask well, we're actually not very good at it as human beings. Our brain isn't equipped to do that. And so I would also say that during this time, it's all the more important that we make the time we spend with people uh, virtually actually count. And that means if you're talking to somebody, just talk to them. It's better you just talk to somebody with your full attention for five minutes than, than have a 30-minute distracted conversation. Um, and so if we do these three things, if we make it a point to spend uh, some time engaging with the people we love each day, if we make it a point to make that time count by ensuring we are not distracted by our devices or, or other tasks, and if we make it a point to reach out to others, recognizing that others are going to be in need, just as we will be in need uh, of help from others during these next few months, then I believe that we can ensure that the physical distancing that we're asked to do does not become social distancing and that we'll still be able to nurture the social connections in our life, which are so important to our health and to our survival. Yeah. And I um, would also offer that I, this is a practice I do with one friend and I, is we leave each other voicemails. And sometimes it's really therapeutic to just be able to talk, particularly if you're scared or you're anxious or you're trying to work through something. And it's a way of 
of like calming yourself down and not necessarily needing the other person on the phone to be in the same space. So I feel like if everyone has a friend like that who they can just sort of stress dump on and then that person can respond when they feel like they're in a position to be reassuring and comforting, I think that that can also be helpful, um, particularly if as we reach out to our friends and family, their anxiety becomes um, contagious or you're just not, in a, you know, your kids are all over you and you're not in a position to be able to respond with the support that they need. Um, I think we're going to see all sorts of ways emerging in the coming weeks and potentially months of people really thinking of new, <laughs> new ways to come together. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what, you know, what's exciting to me is we're already starting to see some examples of that. I just got a message from a friend the other day who makes puzzles uh, for his uh, for his daughters, and usually makes one a day for them, and maybe we'll put them put it with their lunch when they go to school. And he just decided in this uh, age of everyone having uh, to have their kids at home and find ways to take care of them and educate them that he was going to post those puzzles for all parents to be able to use. And I'm seeing more and more of that of people coming together to share tools and resources to create educational and entertaining videos for kids so that parents will have something that they can feel good about using that will advance their education but also keep them engaged. Uh, I'm I'm excited by that because that is the spirit of, uh, of people coming together. And look, right now, if you look around our country, as as heartbreaking as it can be to see the people who have gotten ill and the many who have died Uh, as frightening as it can be, to see where this epidemic is going. I'm also seeing things around me that give me great hope. I'm seeing doctors and nurses in hospitals who, despite not having the masks and gloves that they need, are still going to work on the front lines every day because they want to take care of patients, even though they know they're putting themselves at risk. Uh, I heard from a medical student uh, the other day who wanted to, was petitioning to graduate early from medical school. He had a couple months left before classes were suspended. But he wanted to graduate early so he could join the front lines and help patients who might be struggling with this new virus. You know, the there's a homeless gentleman who, who sits outside this CVS that's on the, the corner of the block that I live on. His name is CJ. And CJ has been sitting by the door of the CVS and wiping it down because he heard that the virus can travel uh, or stay on hard surfaces, and he didn't want people to open that door, pick up the virus, and get sick themselves. These are extraordinary stories of people who aren't required to go the extra mile or step up for other people, uh, but they're doing it. Um, They're doing it because they know that the only way we get through hard moments like this is if we step up, if we recognize that we're interconnected, interdependent, and that we need each other. And that's what they're doing. That, to me, is what the human spirit looks like in its best moments. That's what it looks like when people all across America step up and do their part. And if we see that spirit continue to nurture and grow, uh, if we're intentional about remembering that that's who we are not only in moments of crisis, but who we can be throughout our days, then I think we will come out of this stronger, more resilient, and more fulfilled than when this whole crisis began. 
I agree. Thank you. That's so beautiful. I um, One practical question, and then I'll let you go. Um, the question of testing and the lack of tests, now that we're sort of in this probably imminent lockdown and social distancing phase, is that still relevant? Or are we sort of focused on that when we, uh, I mean, I know we need it, particularly if this comes in waves, but um, how critical is it? Well, testing is is very important for a few reasons. For individual patients, you know, it can be helpful so that we understand, obviously, what's going on. It can help us study also the illness more and understand what it's doing uh, to people and also who it's affecting uh, more than others. From a public health perspective, the testing is also really important because the testing will help us understand where illness is rising, where there are hot spots, where we need to really target our efforts and where we can also very importantly pull back. You know, as we think about the aggressive mitigation measures that are being taken now, one of the most common questions people have is how long is this going to last? How long do I have to avoid going to work and and seeing friends and going to restaurants? And every you know, we don't know right now, but one of the parameters that we're going to need to look at to make that decision about when to pull back are the caseloads. How many positive uh, cases do we have? Uh, where are those cases? How quickly are they rising or stabilizing or falling? And that data will be extraordinarily helpful in guiding us on when we can start pulling back on these measures. But we can't have that data if we don't have testing. Right now, one of the great concerns is that the numbers we're seeing, nearly 5,000 cases today, for example, uh, of COVID-19, are not really reflective of the number of cases we actually have. Um, there are some people who believe that the real number is probably 10 times greater than that. There are many who believe that that's an underestimate, that they're perhaps even greater. Regardless of what it may be, uh, having testing uh, is like having eyeglasses. It allows us to see more clearly into what's happening at a population level and will allow us to guide uh, our our public health efforts. With all of that said, though, I do want to emphasize that while we are ramping up testing, while we are trying to make sure that our healthcare system can handle these infections, the most important thing that we can do right now is to change our own behavior. And that's not nothing. In fact, it's quite powerful. What we've seen in countries that have done this right uh, is that when you observe the right hygienic practices in terms of washing your hands well uh, for 20 seconds at a time, not touching your face when you're outside, cleaning surfaces like your phone and your keys, which commonly get infected, uh, when you do that, when you also are aggressive about Social about physical distancing, about ensuring that you're not touching other people when you're greeting them and that you're not uh, getting together in crowds at restaurants, bars, events, or in the workplace, then you really can flatten that curve, if you will. You can really change the trajectory of this virus. If we look at China and South Korea and Taiwan, what we see is, is incredibly promising. You know, China, which was where this uh, virus initially presented itself, China just closed down all 16 of the new hospitals that are rapidly set up in order to handle uh, cases of COVID-19. All 42 Apple stores that had shut down uh, in China have now opened up again. In South Korea, which was experiencing thousands and thousands of new cases every day, they are now, uh, for three days in a row, uh, registering less than 100 cases, new cases a day. These are all extraordinarily promising signs of progress. 
but a key part of it were the changes that individual people made in their own lives about what they did, about who they interacted with, about how they lived their life. And as hard and as difficult as those measures were, whether they were taken voluntarily in some cases or uh, by force in other cases, those measures made a difference in changing the course of the epidemic. And that can be true here in this country as well. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know you probably have a million interviews to get to. Thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to speak to you about your book together, which people can pre-order now, um, closer to when it comes out. Well, thanks so much, Elise. I really appreciate you covering this topic. And it was just so nice to talk to you uh, about COVID-19, both about what we should do, but also about the larger implications this has uh, for how our country and how the world function going forward. Yeah. And your book is very needed. It's going to be the perfect, one of the antidotes of um, when we come out of this to really address loneliness. So thank thank you. you, Thank you. Thank you for your service. And I'll speak to you soon. I'll look forward to it. Take care then. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Vivek Murthy. For more on Dr. Murthy, head to vivekmurthy.com. That's V-I-V-E-K-M-U-R-T-H-Y.com. And pre-order his book together. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.